Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray, and this is episode number 35 I am uh, I'm thrilled to be joined today by pastor and church planter Dr. Alex Early. Alex is a former church planter in Georgia who is now ministering in Seattle, Washington at Redemption Church. I, uh, I met Alex at this past February's Grace Encounter Conference in Orlando, Florida, uh, where he delivered a very, very moving uh, plenary talk about the gospel grace uh, that we share with our lives, and such is kind of what makes up the bulk of our conversation here today. Um, because in this edition of the of the show, uh, Alex and I seek to discuss that, to discuss uh, sharing God's grace, sharing God's mercy, and sort of the messiness of Jesus's mercy in uh, rescuing and redeeming and really befriending sinners and leading them to uh, repentance. Uh, we we try and um, throughout the course of this conversation shine a bright light on the fact that you know the gospel wasn't meant to dead end on you. It wasn't meant to stop right with you. And changing your life, it was meant to be shared uh, and, and shared with others. And uh, this was uh, a really enriching and encouraging conversation, uh, a Jesus-exalting conversation with a, a very dear brother in Christ. And I, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. So sit back and just kind of uh, settle in here as we get going. Uh, before we begin today's show, uh, uh, of course, uh, this show is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which inspires lifelong discipleship and helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word. To find out more about the Christian Standard Bible, go to csbible.com. Now, for Alex Early. Well, thanks for coming on Ministry Minded, Alex. How are you doing today? Fantastic, fantastic. I am so glad that we were able to make this happen, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, this show. Um, Some uh, of our listeners may or may not be kind of familiar with who you are and kind of what you're doing out on the West Coast. So if you can, let's just kind of start at the beginning. Uh, Just kind of introduce yourself and what you're doing out in Seattle. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so my name is Alex Early. I'm a pastor. Uh, here at Redemption Church, I serve as pastor of preaching and theology, the church that's about four, almost four years old, rather. Uh, so it's a new church here in the city. We're in Green Lake, so if you know the geography of Seattle, we're in, we're in the city. So we're, we're planting and pioneering a new work here and um, really enjoying it. So, yeah, that's kind of a little about me. Uh, my wife, Dan and I, we've been married for about 14 years. And we've got two kids, and 
yeah, so life is busy and fun, and yeah, we're doing it. Oh, that's awesome. I love to hear the work that you're doing um, out uh, in Seattle. And um, if you don't mind, though, um, it, can you kind of share your salvation testimony and how you came to know the Lord? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was uh, born in Woodstock, Georgia, there in the south. You know, so that's about, I don't know, uh, 30 miles or so uh, outside of Atlanta. I was born and raised going to, uh, at the time, it was a very small Baptist church. Uh, it was First Baptist Church of Woodstock. And over the course of my life growing up in the church, my mom played piano there. Um, over the course of my life growing up in church, you know, I watched it grow from 100 people or so to several thousand. Uh, by the time I had graduated high school, there were several thousand people worshiping. So it was a, an interesting thing to watch a mega church, you know, come into being in a small farm town. But that's kind of, so that's where I grew up as far as church context goes, so a Southern Baptist background. And then, um, yeah, but I became a Christian at the age of 15, right before I turned 16. Um, and uh, that's when I really encountered uh, the grace of God. I was involved in going to our youth group. I, our, our youth ministry was pretty incredible. And so I, I went regularly to see my friends there both friends from school and friends from church all kind of started coming to our youth group because it was a lot of fun. It had more of a kind of a young life, kind of a, yeah, fun, games, goofy, small message, good band kind of thing. Uh, and in that environment, um, I met Jesus. And I a Christian, and about maybe 90 days later, after becoming a Christian, I really sensed what I'd now know was God's calling on my life to come into the ministry. And so started pursuing that pretty much right away. Yeah. Well, that's awesome how Jesus kind of brought you to himself in that ministry. Um, I have a similar kind of story in that I was um, always in church. I'm a pastor's kid, but Jesus really didn't draw me to himself till later in life. I was about 16, about the same age as you were. Um, but it's interesting how he always, um, he, he, I was talking about this with another guy recently, how he kind of that philosophy of that Jesus has to break your legs before he can kind of do his work with you. And sometimes that's what he has to do. And uh, Jesus did that for me. And I'm sure you've kind of felt the similar things in that he has to kind of bring you to the end of yourself before he can uh, do something through you. But it's awesome that you felt God's calling on your life early on. Uh, and now I had the privilege of meeting you uh, recently at the uh, 2018 Grace Encounter Conference in Orlando, um, which was a privilege. But before we kind of speak about the conference specifically, um, I was just kind of intrigued when I heard your story, um, because obviously, as you just mentioned, you are a Southern boy uh, growing up in Georgia, and you felt called to serve Jesus on the West Coast. And it's quite a big move from Georgia to Seattle. <laughs> um, so if you can kind of talk about the the season of transition and the story of how God kind of moved you out there. Yeah, so, yeah, they, they really couldn't be more polar opposite in almost every where I grew up. I mean, Seattle is, you know, Seattle, the upper left corner. And um, it's as, as far away from, from Woodstock as I can possibly be. And, um, and that is, I 
not a not a slam against Woodstock. Like I, I'm trying to get out of there, and I'm never coming back. And I I hate those people. Something ugly like that. It's more. I, I don't know. Um, it's it's an interesting thing. Having not uh, grown up here, I feel at home. Um, I feel at home. Like these people are my people, and. Uh, now seeing, watch, watching what Seattle's done over the last five, you know, ten years, but even the most, re- you know, the last year, I mean, we're the fastest growing city in the de- in the last decade, you know, and um, it continues to grow and diversify. So there's a lot of new people coming in and being that I'm new here as well. Uh, it's kind of a, in some sense, it's sad to see the old Seattle change. And at the same time, because I'm also a transplant, um, I have a lot in common with a lot of other people as well. So as a pastor, it's nice to be able to fit in and go, yeah, I didn't know that about the Northwest, right? Yeah, I didn't know that about this. You know? So I, I'm on the same learning curve as several thousand of my, my, my neighbors. So anyway, but how did I get up here? Um, I don't know. As a, as a kid, I had a fascination with the city of Seattle, and I'm not sure why. Uh, it's just one of these weird things. I, I cheered for the Sonics, and so I hope the Sonics are brought back like every Seattle light. But I cheered for the Sonics. Um, I I don't know. There was just this weird, like, I always found the city to be interesting for whatever reason. Uh, then when the grunge scene hit, you know, I was in middle school, uh, and so that was the time to <laughs> continue to explore and figure out who you are. So... Yeah, all the grunge music that came out and all the punk rock that got exposed. Yeah, so there was a lot of just an attraction to the city. Um, but how did I get here? Uh, gosh, it's a wild story. So um, I had planted a church in a bar in Noonan, Georgia. Uh, that church grew to several hundred people. And then um, Mars Hill Church that was up here in Seattle uh, had reached out. And I... and several times and said, Hey, come work here, come work here, come work here. And so finally I did. I was like, okay, all right, I'll do it. Came to Mars Hill. Of course, Mars Hill was Mars Hill. And I really didn't care less about going into that whole story personally. But, um, yeah, so that chapter came to a close for me. Um, and then I went and worked at another church for a couple of years and, uh, Basically, my wife and I, we came to the kind of place where we needed a major, just kind of a break from ministry altogether. God, we were just exhausted and just needed just needed a break for our team reasons, right? So we moved back to Georgia, took a year uh, sabbatical out of ministry altogether, and I got into lots of uh, therapy, as did Jana. It was really, really good and get a lot of reflection, a lot of silence, a lot of solitude, a lot of contemplation, reevaluating life. And after the year, uh, there were several opportunities from kind of around the country that showed up saying, hey, you ready to jump back in? Here's an opportunity here and here and here and here. And so there was, I don't know, maybe a dozen places that had reached out saying, we want you to come here and do that. And of all the places... Uh, we boomeranged back to Seattle. Um, and that's not because uh, the other opportunities weren't amazing. I, I promise you there were really fun ones uh, that had presented themselves. 
Uh, but I think, again, the city of Seattle, uh, there, was a, there was just a desire to be here. Um, and because of the context of so many Christians having been so burned and wounded by the church, I wanted to be a part of serving the body of Christ here and rebuilding and loving, though I'm not the solution. Uh, I want to be part of the blessing and building of the Capital C Church here in Seattle. And the best way to do that was to plug in and invest my life, especially in the local, lower AC Church called Redemption. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, that's it. So we, I've been in ministry for several years and, and decided to boomerang back here and bought a house last fall and have you know, really planted our roots here in the city. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love how kind of God used some difficulties and trials, but all ultimately led you back to kind of that place where it had, had always kind of been drawing you. But it's interesting. Um, I think you kind of told this story. I think you did at the at the Grace Encounter Conference when you were there. Um, but the story of what you mentioned just a little bit a bit ago about you planting a church in a bar. Um, can you kind of tell me that story? Sure. Um, so. Yeah, I'll keep it in brief. I mean, you know, it's one of these things you talk forever and ever when you ask a pastor about whatever. It's like, well, there's a zillion details, but I'll, I'll spare you all the details. Um, essentially, um, I had become overwhelmed with uh, the fact that I wasn't a friend of sinners several years ago. That, that line from Matthew's Gospel leapt off the page into my heart in a way that kept me up at night. Um, and going like I, I looked at my, I, I looked at uh, before it was before we kept our calendars and our phones or wherever. Um, I looked at my day timer, which by the way I've recently moved back to just only day timer, handwritten everything. Um, yeah, I scrolled through my calendar, phone, everything, and went, you know what? I don't have one unbeliever in my life that's actually my friend. All my friends go to church, uh, and I preach at them, or I serve alongside them, or whatever, right? But. I don't have unbelievers in my life. And I noticed that Jesus was a friend of sinners. And that bothered me. That if you were to go through Jesus' daytimer, if you were to go through his calendar, his phone, uh, you would find people that are in his life that would not would not be in your average pastor's life at all. And if they were, that pastor would be fired. Like, like you can't be a friend of a drunk and be a pastor. That's not that's not okay. You can't be their friend. You can be there and preach at them. You can't be their friend. Um, you can't be a friend of a prostitute. You can't be a friend of the addict. You can't be a friend of the gambler. You can't be a friend of the guy that doesn't know how to be a good husband. You can't be friends with those people. You, you can tell them true things, but you cannot enter into a place of friendship. And um, and that needed to change for me. Um, because, because of an, a, a number of reasons. A, Jesus is a friend of sinners, and if I'm going to follow Jesus... He's always going to lead me to a mess, and um, or at least on the way into heaven, <laughs> he's going to lead me to the to the lost, to the least of these, to the broken, to the ones who can't get it right. He's going to get me there. He's just gonna, and and that's okay. And 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 when I get there, I'm not the one with all the answers. He, <laughs> you know. So anyway, so my I became convicted over being a friend of sinners. Went to my pastor where I was serving at a church and said, Hey, 
can I, uh, do you care if I go to the bar to start hanging out with people who obviously in the South, they don't, if you're in the bar and you don't go to church, right? If you go to church, you don't go to the bar. Those people tend not to laugh. Those paths tend not to cross too often. And talk about it. And he was like, no, no, you can meet people at Starbucks. And I was like, well, Starbucks is not really a public house. It's a coffee house. And people in Starbucks are there with their earbuds in working on their laptops or meeting someone for coffee. They're not really there to talk to strangers. Whereas our scene, it's not uncommon to talk to strangers. Right. So, so he was like, no. So I, I just kind of continued to wrestle with it. I was like, you know what? I quit. I quit my job at the church and uh, became a bar back and uh, a substitute teacher. So I'd substitute teach the day and then bar back at night, and then do seminary and all the cracks along the way, uh, as I uh, was. And it was interesting, man. I was the only Christian in the place, of course, and and found myself introducing people to Jesus and having very interesting conversations, because I would be the one guy in the bar uh, that wasn't laughing at particular jokes. But I was there, and I knew that the jokes were funny in one sense, and in the other sense, it's like, oh, I'm I'm not really here to participate. So I'm in the world, not of it. It was, a, you know what I'm saying? So I'm trying to navigate the whole scenario. And before long, uh, ended up planting a church in the bar. Um, and I can go into all the details, but I mean, it's a, it's another 10 minutes, but how it came into being. But essentially, yeah, ended up leading people to faith in Christ. And through a series of other circumstances, the church was born the bar that I was working in. Well, and it's, it's so interesting that that kind of um, took a hold of your heart, because uh, obviously uh, that's not something I think we often think about, um, that phrase, Jesus, the friend of sinners. We kind of think about it theologically as opposed to think about it functionally. Um, and I, I think that the how it captured you functionally is what inspires m- even my own life, uh, because I would have to agree with you in the sense that it's not often that I look through my contacts and see people that I know are unsaved as people that I would consider friends. Um, and that's not the common thing that we hear from people to um, be inspired by, you know, just like what you said, you weren't encouraged into that um, form of ministry. It was just something that captured you. And I think that's what we have to owe to grace, right? Yeah. yeah. And the, the reality is, is like, if you look at, I, I know the, I understand the theology, but if you look at people really as projects, like you're a p- person to be converted, um, they can smell that a mile away. The same way you smell it when a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness shows up on your doorstep. Like, I know why you're here, dude. But somehow, like, evangelicals haven't quite caught on to that. That. <laughs> You know, like your neighbor across the street that doesn't, that isn't a Christian thinks that you're like that when you show up and you start doing your Romans road pitch or whatever. It's like, they feel like a project. And so the reality is, is yes, the Romans road is true. Yes, they're lost. Yes, they're bound for eternity without Christ. Yes, Christ is the exclusive means of salvation. Yes, Jesus was bodily resurrected from them. All the things that we believe are true. Yeah, okay. However, if you betray the very, well, I, I like how Brennan Manning talks about it in the, the Ragamuffin Gospel. Essentially, he says something to the effect of, like, evangelism 
is not one concussion blow after another over the head, but rather you've got to enter into that sacred space of friendship where you can look at someone that you two are loved in the Lord Jesus. That part, that is so, that's so important that people feel that Alex is my friend, whether or not I believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrected son of God or not. Alex is still, we're still going to grill out. We're still going to go to founders games. We're still going to have fun. Like, yes, he's a pastor and he's weird because he believes these weird things from a very old book that are very complicated. He thinks this, but the reality is he's my friend. I'm not a project, you know, and I think that that is communicated over time. And it has to be more than just uh, like a mailbox conversation, as my friend Mark was saying yesterday. Uh, it can't just be like you chat at the mailbox. It's you got to spend time and establish that ground of friendship or evangelism. You really have any kind of context. That is, yes, the Romans wrote true, but they need to see how is the Romans wrote true in your own life? How has Jesus changed you? How are you as a as a person, you know, how does this impact you? And so I think the grounds of friendship is really what's oftentimes overlooked in the name of quote, getting the mission done. For sure, 100%. And, well, I would ask you now then, um, having experienced a church plant in a odd setting like a bar, um, how does that kind of inform or I should say impact what you're doing with Redemption Church uh, at all? Yeah. Um, well, Redemption's very different. We, we're in Green Lake, it's a beautiful part of our city. Um, we meet in an, uh, a set, a big, uh, like a big brick, beautiful uh, Seventh-day Adventist building, you know? So we rent the church from them because they're worshiping on Saturdays. So that works out fine for us. And um, so the vibe is completely different. There's not an ice machine. There's not a phone. There's not, you know, bartenders like having to slip in there and pour a pint for the pizza restaurant next door, you know, uh, it doesn't smell like cigarettes. It's, uh, the floor is not sticky. There's not inappropriate drawings of women on the walls. And, uh, the bathrooms actually, the stall doors close cause guys aren't in there doing other things the night before, like doing coke or other things in the bathroom. Right. Like it's a completely different vibe. <laughs> it feels like a normal church vibe, right? It doesn't feel like a bar. At the same time, um, some of the some of the lessons that I learned are, are still very much so. They they transcend time and place. The people are still people. The people still have the same questions, um, and the gospel is still the same answer, right? They've changed, uh, and so but it has it does have certain people have certain stigmas about going into church buildings. They just do. Going okay, like in like I love the old church feel that we have now. I particularly love it. I love the pews, I love the organ, I love the whole thing. I think it's amazing. Right? But there are people that didn't grow up in church or have any frame of reference, and everything feels so weird. Like there's a big white stained glass Jesus. What is that? And we're sitting on a pillow. I won't see stained glass all week. I won't sing these weird hymns about. The blood of the lamb. Like, what is that? There's a fountain filled with blood. What a terrifying image. But we're going to sing it. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, 
there's this guy that opens a very old book and tells me about a Messiah. Don't know what that is. Oh, and he's going to read it and translate it from Greek. Never heard of that, you know, other than the restaurant. Like, there's all these things that surround traditional Sunday worship that you and I can take for granted that somebody that didn't grow up in the church can walk in off the street and go, this is so weird. This is so weird um, on every level. Whereas a bar, well, people have been in the bars. They know what a bar is. Uh, and so there's the environment kind of feels different. But yes, there's some things that I've carried with me into the ministry here. And a whole lot of it has to do with being very highly relational, being available, being among the people, not just leading people, but among them. That our church, not everybody in our church, I think, has my phone. Like, I'm accessible. I'm available. Like, I want to know what's going on among the people. And that if you own a bar, church, or a traditional building, or a house church, or whatever the ministry model that you make it, right? The big idea is to be among the people and to share the gospel and to ultimately have the word and the sacraments right, present, you know, as Jesus is. So the, the, the building that you gather in is really irrelevant. Uh, it is what defines a church? Well, it's where people are gathered in the name of Jesus, when the Bible is open, when baptism and communion are regularly observed, right? These are where uh, qualified leaders are in place, where church discipline is in place, right? What counts as a church? Well, it's these kinds of things that need to factor in, not just what's the building, you know? So some of that intact, but what do you bring out of the bar from Newton, Georgia to Seattle, Washington? The same thing. The same thing, literally. It's 1 Corinthians 15, right? It's, For I delivered to you of first importance, right? Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried, and was raised according to the scriptures. Same gospel. Same gospel. Still being a friend of sinners. Still making space for those, the lost of the Yeah, that's that's awesome, and it's it's so true that the gospel is the answer regardless of what kind of context you're in. And um, but uh, let's kind of shift gears slightly um, and kind of go back and um, talk about the Grace Encounter Conference, just because that was my first introduction to you and your, your speaking and, and whatnot, and I was very moved. Um, not only by the whole conference as a whole, but uh, your talk in particular. Um, what were some of the biggest takeaways for you from that experience, though? Uh, I think I think what I enjoy about uh, that conference, and I hope they do it again next year. That was such a – it was really cool. I, I really like the diversity of not just the, not just the ethnic diversity, which – which is fantastic, but the theological diversity represented in the room too. I mean, you've got, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, very conservative Presbyterians. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got, I don't know what, like Pentecostal slash charismatic slash, you know, I don't know, holiness tent revival kind of stuff going. And it's like, whoa, I love Having all of that, 
that technological diversity in the room, I think is so interesting. Um, it doesn't like you check all your beliefs or theology at the door, but it's like, no, let's all bring them together. Let's, let's see where we sync up. Let's see where we're different. Let's see and why we're in these places and still see the fact that it's the apostles creed that really has bound us together. You know, once you outside the apostles creed, we're in trouble. But, but beyond that, it's like, wow, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different kinds of children in God's family. <laughs> I think I really love that. Do I think some of them are radically wrong? Of course. Do they think I'm radically wrong? You bet. Um, and that goes, but again, it's like, that doesn't make us not brothers and sisters. And it doesn't say anything bad about our father either. It's just the fact that like, this is, this is our lot. And so I think it's, I think it's exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. I I noticed the same thing sitting there, just hearing um, some Baptists and some closet Lutherans or Presbyterians and then these Bapticostals kind of speak out. And they were um, all of them extremely passionate about not just their theological bent, but more so about the Jesus that they were speaking about. And that's what was truly captivating for me, uh, just sitting kind of in the congregation, as it were, um, just kind of seeing all that in front of you, it was truly moving. Um, but perhaps for me, the biggest takeaway was actually something that you said um, during not a talk necessarily, but during the panel discussion. Uh, usually sometimes I don't, I, I tend to check out during those uh, if I have to be honest, but this time I was really um, keyed in and uh, because you posed this question uh, that I hope that you can unpack for us uh, here. Um, but it, you posed the question, does your church look like your neighborhood? And I was really moved by that question because I don't think I had ever thought about that before, but uh, kind of, if you can, can you unpack that question for us? Yeah. Does your church look like your neighborhood? Well, yeah. Um, in a day where uh, ethnic diversity is finally starting, I mean, we're still at the very beginning of it really. Right. But finally beginning to take root uh, in broader, whatever you define as evangelical churches, right? The fact that it's finally a thing, like, okay, we do need to emphasize diversity. We do need to have, it does need to be a little more eclectic, you know? Um, that in and of itself is very true, but it can become, in a sense, a new law. Um, that is, if my church isn't, you know, one-third you know, Latinos and one third Asians and one third African American, you know, like kind of start breaking things down uh, and going, if I don't have everybody from under the sun in this room, then it's a failure. Well, that's just not, that's just not true. Um, that's just not, that's not true. If you live in an all black neighborhood and the African American goes, ah, I need to get some white people in here. Like why? They don't live here. Be faithful to content. Like, who, who's in your neighborhood? If if your if your church doesn't resemble your, your neighborhood, I think that's the problem. So, yeah. So that's some of the idea is going. Don't feel the pressure to all of a sudden like let's become the most diverse thing in the world because that's a hot issue. But rather go. Let's keep the gospel the hot issue. And and at the same time, if you are in a very diverse neighborhood. 
Well, then that means there needs to be some, some adjustments made to make space for those who are part of the minorities to welcome them to the table. Absolutely. They, they, they need to be in the room and at the table and in leadership. But it's a matter of, a matter of, am I in a diverse area? Yep. Then I need a diverse looking church. Am I in a very, you know, my neighborhood, like our church is extremely Caucasian. We're in, we're in Green Lake. Okay. And, and Green Lake is a primarily a, a very, very Caucasian neighborhood. So do I feel bad that we don't have more ethnic minorities? No. Would it be great? Absolutely. But do I need to go out and start like trying to redo everything? I don't, I don't feel that pressure in order to try to bring more people in from other neighborhoods. I, rather, I want to see their neighborhoods reaching them. You know what I mean? So I think that I don't think I'm saying that clearly enough, but I, I hope that. No, I, I think you are. And I think it's very important that, just like you said, we don't ascribe to a new law that forces us to do something that we're not. It's actually, it's keeping the main thing, the main thing as it is and being faithful to your locality with the mission of the gospel that's there. And I think that's what's important. And it kind of goes back to what you kind of brought from your experience in the bar in Georgia to the church in Seattle. It's not that you're going to try and attract drunks necessarily. It's just that you're preaching the same gospel for sinners and sinners are all that there are. So that's, that's the, that's kind of the, 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 the thing that goes uh, it's kind of the through line through all of the things that we do in ministry, whether we are in a predominantly Caucasian area or whether we are in a predominantly African-American context. Regardless, it's the same uh, message that we ought to be speaking. And I think what you're saying is so true. Uh, be faithful to your context. Does your church look like your neighborhood? And if it doesn't, then you have to think about whether there's a something you need to shift or adjust in what you're preaching or how you're um, going about your ministry. Um, so 100%, I think you are correct about that. Um, but another thing um, that I was kind of moved by what, and during your talk, if you'll permit me, uh, I don't mean to flatter you, but um, I was really moved by uh, your, your talk, The Grace We Share, I think it was called. And um, I was really moved by not just your unpacking of the gospel, but I think your um, emotion when you were unpacking the gospels, not many speakers today kind of show that type of sincerity, I think. Um, and I, so I just kind of want to thank you for being real uh, and honest when you were speaking, but I was so inspired when you said, and, and I wrote this down. Um, one of your quotes was that the only way to be in God's choir is to admit that you sing off key and that the only way to be in God's family is to recognize that you don't deserve to be there. Um, I think that's really beautiful. Um, and Co, can you kind of uh, elaborate on that and talk to me kind of about how God's family is a quote unquote beautiful mess? <clears throat> yeah, that um, yeah, that comes out of the the, uh, the book I wrote called "The Reckless Love of God," and um, that that off key stuff. Um. Yeah, so the, the big idea there is, yeah, just what it says, you know, um, the only way to be in, in, in God's choir is to sing off key. It's like, you've got to be a mess to get in here. Like, 
that Jesus said, I didn't come for the, the, the healthy. I came for the sick. Like the, the thing is, you got to admit that you don't have it all together. That's the prerequisite for the gospel to take root. It's good news precisely because I'm drowning in bad news. Uh, and so I've got to, I've got to own the fact that I don't deserve to be in the family of God if I really understand who I'm talking about. A triune God of Israel, right? We're going, I don't deserve to be in this family. I've got to own it. I've got to understand exactly how radical the cost was to God. That God cost God's own son. It came at great cost for me to be the recipient of grace. That Grace is not God turning a blind eye to my fallen condition and going, well, come on in the family anyway. No, that would have compromised his holiness. God did not compromise his holiness in befriending me and adopting me and redeeming me. He kept his eyes wide open and sent his son as a propitiation for my sin. And so so I have to own the fact that Good Friday is my fault. And when I see that and I go, oh my God, Gosh, so that's what God did to bring me in. Yeah, that's where all the emotion comes from. Is because when God loves me, it's not a, a silly Hallmark card generic kind of plasticky, sugary love. Like, no, it's a real love that came at overwhelming, incomprehensible sacrifice, right? On his behalf, God did not compromise his holiness in adopting me. And I think that is that's at the core. I think that's at the core of the gospel. That our God is exactly how Jesus addressed him in the high priestly prayer, holy Father. And I think those two ideas, those those two ideas, those two truths held together as holy and Abba Father. Um, that provides context now for me to then experience and express emotion. Yeah, one hundred percent. I I agree with that, and I can relate to that. And it, it's taken sort of my own um, realization of the fact of how desperately depraved I am uh, for me to really grip this idea of uh, the gospel of grace. And I think that's the whole point: is um, we don't like to admit that. We don't like to see our deficiencies. We want to, we want to turn a blind eye to all the ways that we've fallen and fallen short. And, and, um, it, what's interesting about the gospel and about what Jesus does is he, is he actually is encouraging us to not turn a blind eye to that, but to realize that that's what he died for. And I think that sort of reality, that truth is what allows me uh, personally, but I think um, us in general as Christians to never get over the fact of what you just described, that Jesus is the propitiation for our faults and that God is not turning a blind eye to your sin. He's actually, as you said, looking at it with wide eyes because Jesus died for it. And I think that's an amazing reality that we can never kind of be uh, dull to, uh, right? Yeah, that's good. Good. Yeah, it's that God, God absolutely went into this relationship with eyes wide open. That God knew what he was buying when he bought you. He knew what he was getting out of this deal. He knew that he was going to give his son for who? 
you got me out of this deal? That seems like a bad purchase. Like, you, I'm worth this. That's, that's kind of what the, the experience of grace actually starts to feel like. They go, God, you didn't get a good deal on your purchase. You got me. And, but that's what grace, grace is that thing that makes you go, I, I know I don't belong here, but oh my gosh, I'm so thankful. Thank you, God, that I'm here. And it's that grace that put you at the table. Um, it's the grace that keeps you at the table. That is, like, I know that today you and I could hang up the phone and I could go and do, break any commandment, you name it. I could go do whatever I want, and nothing's going to separate me from the love of God. I know that's true. There's no, I'm in Christ. I know that. And at the same time, that's not a license to sin. That's the very power that keeps me wanting to go more toward holiness. So, oh my God, because Jesus gave his life for me, I don't look at that and go, sweet, now i got a free debit card that I can just run up as much sin on that account as I want. No, because Jesus died for me, I go, oh, how can I get as far away from what kills Jesus? And how can I bring as much glory to him? You know, so it's really amazing how that what that grace really does to you. Yeah, one it, totally. And it, I think it also stems from uh, just what you were talking about. Um, it, it stems from you recognizing what Jesus did for you and then it's not you doing it it's it's the god that created you coming down and taking all that on himself that's to me something that um i've been thinking about a lot lately um that this creator god took the place and chose to uh dwell with his creatures with these filthy sinners and man that reality is something that really can change the way you look um, at the Bible, and even the way you look at evangelism, um, you taking the place uh, and going out and befriending sinners to kind of take it full circle is exactly what Jesus did for us. And uh, that's a, a truly amazing reality. Um, another thing that you um, said during your talk, though, that really impacted me is you said that um, a sermon is simply the overflow of a prayer closet spilling out onto others. And for me, that was um, a captivating line, but also a convicting truth um, because, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm an associate pastor. I'm wearing a lot of hats and it is, it would be easy for me to quote unquote phone in a lesson or a sermon or whatnot and kind of wing it because I'm too busy. Um, but for a sermon to be what it is and what it should be uh, and to be truly empowered by the spirit, there needs to be some tears, I think, beforehand um, uh, in the prayer closet. And I think that's something that I, uh, I have to admit that I don't consciously or um, always do, but it's something that I should strive for, um, that that communion with the God who saved me is what is going to empower me and embolden me to speak his truth. And I, I think you, you nailed that with that, with that kind of uh, sentiment, right? Yeah. You can treat the sermon as more or less like, yeah, I can, I can study, I can write it, I can get up, I can communicate data. But the sermons that have changed my life that I've listened to, or 
are always the ones that are where you know you're listening to somebody who's who's literally that's in their fabric of their being. They believe this. This was worked into their soul. This was massaged, you know, by the spirit into their spirit to where it's going. This is they believe this is their this is this is an overflow of the of your prayer cloth. So like for me, like a constant discipline is to stay mindful of the fact that my Bible is not primarily there for me to open up and to get sermons for Sunday. Like, my that's not what the Bible is for. Like, I, I gotta sit down and eat at the table, you know. Like, and uh, and the church gets leftovers, and that's what they need me to be doing. By the way, like, with the saints, if you go ask somebody at retention, like. Well, what do we want Alex doing? Well, it, they won't tell you. We want him writing things or sermon. They're going to say things like people that are serious about their faith. They're going to go, we should hope he's connecting you with people for himself and not just using the ministry or that the, the study time merely to, to just come give us data, you know? So I think that's an important piece of sermon. Another question um, I want to ask you is, uh, your, your talk was filled with a lot of uh, powerful quotes and uh, anecdotes and things like that. So what are what are some of the books that have impacted you and impacted you most throughout the course of your ministry? Uh, yeah, so some of the some of the books that have impacted me. Um, well, definitely, like I mentioned a moment ago, Ragamuffin Gospel, you know. Um, it might be better to mention authors, <laughs> but like Brennan Manning, Henry Nowen, Frederick Beekner, um, Eugene Peterson; those are those are the men that I find myself reading more and more and more these days. And I know those are all old white guys. Um, they're not women, and they're not uh, ethnic minorities. Uh, so I, I know, like, but I, those are the people that I've found in the last three to five years. Three years have been um, the most uh, most impactful. Uh, for a different reason. Brennan is constantly stoking the flame of God's overwhelming love, right? Uh, Henry Nowen is constantly calling you to a place of um, ordinariness. Finding finding a place of stillness to listen to God. Uh, Not just read Bible and not just serve and do ministry, but to really connect it to the You know, Beekner, I, I absolutely think Frederick Beekner might be the he might be the best writer I've ever read. Um, but he, he has a way of processing pain and emotion um, that just does it unlike anybody else. Um, and he's okay with being unsure of himself and unsure of God sometimes. Um, and so his faith sounds like faith. And I love, like, Eugene. You know, I feel like Eugene and I are on a first-name basis, though I've never met him. I love Eugene. You write her long enough, you're like, oh, this is my friend. <laughs> like, um, Eugene Peterson, I love him because he's calling me into, like, a what real pastoral ministry looks like. That it's, they, they, that, that there's more to it than just preaching. But there's, there's a whole lot of pastoral care, connection with people, 
and helping people put together the pieces to the best of my ability, you know, of their fragmented stories, trying to reconcile who God is in relation to their oftentimes chaotic worlds, right? But those are some of the people that I read um, often nowadays that is just really good. Oh, another book I'm reading now for my third time. I started, yes, yesterday it was. Uh, it's a fantastic little bitty book, maybe 80 pages, called Theology of uh, right here. Theology of uh, the Ordinary by Julie Canlis. Yeah, uh, yeah, Canlis family here in unreal restaurant here in Seattle. But the theology of of the ordinary. Um, so those are places I find myself going, drifting more toward a more contemplative kind of pastoral. Yeah, sure. I, I love those recommendations. Those are there's some that I haven't read, and there's some that I have. So um, I'm just really going to take advantage of those insights. But um, sort of as we uh, wrap things up here, um, my last question for you would be this: is um, if you could kind of go back and taking what you've uh, experienced and learned uh, throughout the course of uh, God allowing you to be in ministry. If you could tell your younger self one thing about the ministry, what do you think that'd be? Gosh, my younger self. Uh, I would say you are not who you think you are, and you're not who they say you are either. I am not who I am not my highest praise that I've ever received from somebody, and I'm not my greatest condemnation that I've received from somebody, be itself or someone else, right? But if I could go back to my earliest days, I would drive home, Alex, above everything, you were God's child, and I would everything in my power to disciple me and, and understanding what what does that mean? What is that supposed to feel like? What are the practical implications of a child of God? I think that is one of the most, if not the most overlooked and omitted realities of the entire gospel that almost no one talks to me about. Like, I, I, I can't, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to mention it to me again this week of what it means to be a child of God. And it is essential for someone in ministry to remember you are not God's employee. You're his child. Above everything, Jesus did not die to make me a pastor. He died to bring me into the family of God. And that's important. And yes, yes, uh, the, the Jesus bought me with his blood, Acts 20, right? And the Holy Spirit made me an elder, made me an overseer. You bet that that's involved in, in my day-to-day functional office in the church. However, my fundamental identity is a child. So if I could go back and get really drilled down on what does it mean to a beloved child of God above everything else. That way I'd, or, yeah, that way I don't have to work for an identity. I can work from it, and I can work 
beloved identity. Yeah, uh, I love that, and I think it's so it's so relevant for um, you know younger men in the ministry or for younger ministers in general. And is because I can speak from experience. It is so easy to find the locus of your identity in what you are doing, in, in how successful your ministry is, in how well you're preaching, and how well you're expositing the word. Um, but if you're finding your identity, not in that, but in, in, you know, um, in what Jesus Christ did for you, that really frees you up to kind of do the things that we've been talking about of befriending sinners, of going out in search of the people who aren't the, um, high and the mighty of not trying to rub our noses with the people who are elite or anything like that. We can kind of love the downcast and befriend those who are down and out on themselves because, we know where our identity is and where our reputation lies. And it's not with us. It's with the one who died for us. And I think um, in our society that is infatuated with um, social media and resumes and platforms, it's really easy for uh, young preachers to try and fabricate that life for themselves when, um, I would want to tell my younger self too, and I'm, I'm a young guy in ministry, is that don't find your satisfaction there. And I think that's really important. That's really, uh, that resonates with me a lot. Yeah. And you know, it's great. It's like, as you go out, like, it doesn't matter. The guy on the street here, right by my house, Aurora, which is one of the roughest streets in the nation. But um, the guy that's shooting up out there, we see it all the time at our grocery store behind our house. The guy that's shooting up is the he needs the same identity and the gospel, the same identity that is afforded to him, the same identity that's afforded to the to the big wig at Amazon downtown right now. All of them need to be adopted into God's family as his as his as as his children. And so that's what I'm inviting people to. And the guy shooting up has different questions than the guy with down at Amazon. Well, loved by God in Christ. And so the issue now becomes a contextualization piece. How do I speak to the guy that's on the street to the, to the guy down, you know, at Amazon? You know? How do I contextualize the gospel? I mean, that, that can be another day, but um, yeah, I think the child of God piece is massive, especially for young men. Especially for because we're so driven to want to prove our identity or find an identity. And I say child because uh, many of us just struggle with daddy issues. We're really honest. And most men, uh, and most pastors won't admit that, but I really believe that's that's the case more often than not. You know, hey, we're in ministry. We're talking about our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father. And um, there's something to work through for most of us regarding of God's. Mm, I love that. That's so true, Alex. Um, and I'll just kind of leave it there. And uh, I appreciate your time today. Uh, I've really appreciated you coming on and just spending this uh, hour with, with me and uh, for what you shared. And I really think this will be an encouragement. It was to me. And so I pray it is for others. But uh, thanks again for your time. And I look forward to uh, when our paths might cross again in the future. Yeah, so much for having me. Yeah, man. 
Thanks again to Dr. Early for being today's guest. Uh, make sure you read the blog notes for this show and check out all the great resources that are linked there. And uh, that's it for today's episode of Ministry Minded, though. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, make sure you head over to iTunes and SoundCloud and Google Play and subscribe. And you can also follow the show on Twitter. And uh, thanks again for uh, listening. And thanks again for the Christian Standard Bible for sponsoring this show. I hope you guys have a great afternoon, a great morning, great night. Whenever you're listening, I'll see you guys on the next episode. Blessings.